Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of FF Plus. We're your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and today we have three movies on the docket to discuss. For the first review, I welcome back fellow Seattle Film Critics Society member and Drink in the Movies co-founder, Taylor Baker, because this is a divisive film, and it might be better to hear more than one perspective. Thank you for making the time to be here, Taylor. Thank you for having me, and hello. Hello, hello. We've been sitting on this for a little over a week now, having it brew mm-hmm. in our brains, so I think we're ready to dump all of these feelings out on the table and see where we land. <laughs> or perhaps the... uh, puke all over a nice fur. <laughs> <laughs> that is indeed something that has happened in the movie. So the movie that we're talking about is Babylon from Paramount Pictures. It stars Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Diego Calva, Gene Smart, Jovan Adepo, Lee Jun Lee, and because Taylor reminded me of this recently, Flea. It is directed by Damien Chazelle, written by Damien Chazelle. What's it about? The film chronicles the rise and fall of multiple characters during Hollywood's transition from silent to sound films in the late 1920s. So... To get us started, I want to ask Taylor what your level of appreciation was coming into this for Damien Chazelle. Like, where are you on his previous three main feature films, at least? So Whiplash, I saw when it came out, and I saw uh, maybe a couple years after, long before I began writing and really studying film, back when I was just what I would call a film fan. I don't feel... Uh, like I can make an adequate assessment of that film other than saying I have a lot of positive feelings for it. And I really enjoyed the tonality that it was able to accomplish. I was uh, very impressed, but not nearly as smitten as I understand you are with La La Land. And First Man is one of my favorite films uh, of the year that it was released. And I think has one of the best supporting performances in Claire Foy in that decade. So I am very positive on Chazelle overall. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I'm a super fan, and anybody who's listened to my podcast pretty much knows that already, but he was one of those rare directors that for me was three for three with five-star movies, not really counting Guy and Madeline the Park Bench because it was a student film, and you know there was some learning uh-huh. that was taking place at that time. But I am very, very high on him. And his varying tones in all three of those movies, I really enjoyed them. And so I expected nothing less than another masterpiece. This is definitely a change in the way that he has approached storytelling in some ways. Probably not in the production design department, because that's always a focal point and one that he does very strongly. But the movie came out to initial reactions that were very divisive. I personally was glad to see those because I usually don't watch many trailers and I, especially for movies I'm hyped for, and I don't read anything before we get a chance to screen them here in Seattle. But knowing that people had such just visceral like responses to this movie on completely opposite ends of the spectrum helped me to prepare going in for it mentally so that I was a little bit kind of more prepared to be let down, I guess, than, and and I wasn't going to be quite as disappointed than as I would have been if I would have walked into this expecting La La Land 2. You are decidedly higher on this film 
than I am. And that's why I wanted you to be here because we're going to talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, et cetera. What is it that makes this a movie that you love? Because as I understand it, this is like one of your favorite films of the year. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but what is it that yeah, it did this for is, you? This is absolutely one of my favorite films of the year. There's a lot to say. I think first I would describe the way that I interpret the film as more of a 1920s Hollywood jackass film where everyone's on coke for the first two hours. There's definitely a lot of energy, literally. very frenetic. <laughs> And uh, yes, they're literally doing lines. I, I do think that this film continues an overall theme from Whiplash to La La Land. I'm going to exempt First Man from this because he didn't write First Man. But this is kind of the way that I view it, his third screenplay and kind of a trilogy of this line in jazz and life between the, the closeness of comedy to horror. And the beginning of the film... There's these horrific scenes that we're laughing at. And at the end of the film, there's these horrific scenes that we're very disturbed by. Often the same characters. Often the beginning of the film directly foreshadows the way that those characters are behaving at the end of the film. So part of my appreciation, other than all the craftsmen at work, is the quality of the screenplay to directly show corollary lines and then pay them off in a very satisfying way that doesn't feel hyper conventional even though it is at an abstract level a very conventional accomplishment you know uh, margot robbie shows up at the silent sound stage set is handed a bag of peanuts your first one's free she pops it open there's pills in it well guess what that's the same person that gets them in trouble at the end of the film as they're having issues with drugs and money so there's there's just a plethora of threads that are being juggled that are all actually conventional when you strip it away. But the presentation is so dazzling that it, it kind of makes you fall in love with the horror that eventually comes in Babylon and making you feel those human emotions that uh, ultimately are destructive, like longing understanding the the desire to want to be part of something bigger and seeing how that just completely ruins people's lives, but you can still understand it. I mean, it's just so enveloping and human that even if you dislike the film or the, the close-up shot of the elephant shitting on the camera lens, literally, you can still find something very human to grab onto. That's very well said, and I will agree to some extent i find myself pretty split down the middle and so for every aspect of this film i feel like there's something i could praise and then there's a reason i could also have criticism for it the elements that like what you just mentioned the elephant pooping on the screen never been a fan of crap like that pun intended those kind of jokes just never, they don't land for me. That kind of potty humor, again, pun intended. But the excess in this movie, I think, makes it very difficult for some people, myself included. I felt at a distance and unable to fully engage with these ideas that you were talking about with the characters and their journey because we were so pounded on with this debauchery to a level where I felt like 
the point had been made well before the scenes would end. And that's how we ended up at a over three hour long movie was everything felt too long just because he wanted you to live in it and just stay there and stay there. And I sort of started to get tired of each section and I was thinking back and I can go through the narrative arcs of the characters journeys and, and how they progress. And, and it all makes sense, right? From an intellectual standpoint, Margot Robbie plays this character, Nellie, who is just wanting to be in Hollywood. She is your very prototypical young actress. She's playing a, a, a different world version of what Emma Stone played in La La Land. Right. And She's going a much more direct, like, I want to be in the party. I want to be in the know. I, wa I want to know everybody, meet everybody. I want to, like you said, dazzle everyone with my showmanship and my dancing. And she is into drugs. She's into alcohol. She's just, she's there for what Hollywood is at the time. Like, that's how you get noticed. That's how people got their breaks. And so we follow that whole career tra trajectory over this change of seasons from silence into talkies and it's some fascinating stuff in there man like i gotta agree with you for me every time we saw filmmaking in this movie i was locked in and and i loved it there are some scenes early in the movie where nelly is getting her first chance at acting which i thought were brilliant the the ones on the with the female director on the set and she just kind of gets thrown in by accident to some stuff and the way that they're shot and the way that they capture what it was probably like to actually make a movie at that point where you've got like back to back sets out in this middle of a desert doing all sorts of different movies at the same time. It was wild. And then the best scene in the movie to me, and if she is nominated for an Oscar, I think this will be the scene that they put up there, you know, when they do like a little montage for each actress nominee, there's a moment where they're kind of like recreating that scene from singing in the rain where they're do on a stage and they're t doing sound for the first time. And it is amazing. A plus stuff. But then in between that, we get just this constant level of craziness and wildness. And it just took me out of it. You know, like, I guess it, it boils down to, I felt like it was a movie about excess that was in excess itself and got to the point that it sort of, hamstrung its own message because it wasn't enjoyable enough to it just kind of went overboard i guess is, is how i feel about it so i understand what you're saying i just have a completely different personal comprehension of it you say the scenes are going on too long and they're starting to rub you the wrong way that's exactly the point you shouldn't be having fun watching the debauchery. You should be realizing how horrific it is. And the only way to do that is to start with it being very fun and jovial and then just keep holding and holding and just see Brad Pitt at four in the morning, just, you know, unable to put on his sunglasses, completely strung out to see the actual consequences, the very human consequences of living in excess and to understand that these people are running away into Hollywood. They're not running to something that they believe in with these great principles. They're running away from a life that they don't want, you know? And she says, I just think of home. The, these characters are heartbreaking characters, and they're all using filmmaking to try to make something of themselves 
but the the ultimate uh, perspective that Chazelle gives us is that the industry, the business, doesn't care about you. Once you've served your good for the craft, you're unnecessary here. We don't need you. And yeah. that is just what's constantly underlying the whole film. And that that's, to me, why it's more complex than just um, going on for gratuity's sake. It's going on because you start if you're not like yourself and you, you for some reason don't enjoy the excrement scene, you start laughing, you start uh, smiling and having joy w watching what's happening. And then, you know, three minutes of the same shot is going on and you're like, okay, well, this is a little much. And then it's an hour later and they're still having these parties and you're like, well, this is a little much. And then it's two hours later and she's making her dad go in the middle of the desert while he's high and drunk to go fight a snake. It starts being silly and it ends being horrific. And that is the film itself as well. So that's a, a great point. And again, I, I'm just going to say a million times, I'm very mixed. I don't hate it because I can recognize almost everything you're saying. It's hard for me to disagree with that being the intention and the way that the film is constructed, even though it doesn't work for me because of it just being too much and too long. The ending does fall a little flat for me simply because so not what happens to our characters. I think that it's powerful stuff and a very strong message in the end. But things like the snake and the, the party at the beginning, even to some extent, the caricatures of people pushed me from where I was at first looking at, at it as this criticism of actual realistic Hollywood into, oh my gosh, this is kind of fantasy. And, and then it became harder to like take it serious because there's a character Toby Maguire plays in this film towards the end. And it completely just, I, I didn't, none of it worked for me. None of it. It felt so cartoony and just unable to take it seriously. And, and it's supposed to be, I'm sure it's supposed to be kind of like that. Like, I mean, I don't think it was an accident that it's acted and the things we see are shown to us, but they, they just pushed it over that edge, man, to me where I was like, yeah, but this isn't real. Like this is too much fake for me to take it seriously and believe that these characters would have gone through this. Whereas there are moments throughout that are a hundred percent believable. And, and so it was a struggle and I don't I don't think Chazelle perfectly balanced getting his message across quite the way he wanted to, even though the the overarching message came through, which for me, frankly, was I called this if La La Land was a love letter to the movies, making movies and magic of that. Like this is almost like hate mail. <laughs> and this is almost like him saying, I'm showed you I've showed you where two characters have these dreams of Hollywood and what it's like to go get that and achieve it and to have the dream. Now I'm going to show you what many people have to deal with and why the industry is complete trash. And like you said, why people are disposable and how it ruins lives. And then he ties it back at the very, very end to a, to a moment that many have called pretentious. I personally love this because it does come back and say, but here's what I want to leave you with is like, ultimately, all this crap you just saw, this is what we got. 
This is what we achieved in filmmaking despite these things happening. And now I want to leave you with this and have you go wrestle with those feelings. That's what I took from it. Is that kind of along the lines of how you felt walking out of it? I don't think that's exactly how I felt, but I think we do feel very similar. And so far as you're talking about the 2001-esque Stargate montage sequence at the end, which is perhaps the best directed sequence of the year. But how, how would you put this? There's a quality to the chemistry that's happening at the end where he's showing the, the photo process and the beginning where he's showing the chemistry of showing human emotions on film. Like there's, there's just a level of abstraction to the beauty that I think exists and is very profound. And then he shows images, once again, of joy and horror. You know, you see the T2 sequence, which is um, joyful because it's an incredible feat of technology. You, you see uh, the Jurassic Park dinosaur, you know, once again, how many people were brought joy by Jurassic Park? How many people were terrified? of the dinosaurs, um, especially if you're a child when you first saw the film. So I I think that he's just constantly getting at this theme, which you uh, addressed with your La La Land comparison, which is that movies are both emotions. And to make them, they're coming from people who are both sides. There's the Nelly sequence at the end where you see a full change in her where she goes from being Nellie to becoming the actress Nellie because there's two people with a camera in the room. And as soon as she sees them, she starts playing a character and that character arc is just, it's, I mean, it's timeless, but it's also so profoundly human. And I think that that end montage sequence, you know, everybody has their own personal memories with these snippets of film that he shows um, but the the final line before the montage even begins is, I'm happy again. That singing in the rain, you know, it, it cuts right when he says, I'm happy again. And there's just, there's an endless depth, I think, to processing that for each person. And I think that's, to me, why this kind of wraps up a trilogy for Chazelle, talking about the different types of uh, sacrificing yourself for achieving something and the dazzle of human emotions you you could look at whiplash and think about how technically masterful and accomplished and human that is, but also how terrible, horrific, and all these things that we're talking about with how you feel when the scene keeps going on in Babylon. Um, and so I think, I think there's just a great coalescence there that you have to kind of remove first man from to really appreciate the trilogy idea. I don't disagree one bit with that. I, I feel the very similarly about the connection between the three protagonists or i guess they're not three there's more than three protagonists overall if you combine them and and very strong thread there that connects them was there any performances or any of the technical elements other than the production value which i think is an obvious one for anybody who's even seen the trailer that stood out to you i think it has the best score of the year easily just her the wits, absolute man. her wits best score of the year uh, I think it's Silas's uh, best cinematography since First Man, which was equally uh, incredible. Jean Smart, I think, is going to be overlooked, but her um, her roles for the last five years have been pitch perfect if you look at any of her performances. But the way that she's able to sell the shrewd film critic um, for all its, its foibles and um, pluses is 
very good. She has a, a one-on-one scene with Brad Pitt where she explains why he's at the end of his road and, and um, the differences between the people and the cockroaches in a, in a house fire. And there's a moment where she's, I think, in The Jazz Singer, or maybe it's in Nellie's film, where people start, yeah, it's Nellie's film, where people start laughing and she's completely drifted out. And then she looks around her and sees the crowd reacting and starts taking notes. So there's, uh, the, yeah, that character, I had a lot of joy with. And I think that um, the fellow who plays Manny, who I'm forgetting the name of now, Diego is just Calva. incredible. How about you? Diego Calva. Yeah, How about Diego, you? Did any Diego performances? Yeah, Robbie's exceptional uh, for what this movie is asking of her. She's just incredible. I mean, she can do nothing wrong, honestly. And she continues to prove that. And this is another level of challenging, in my opinion, that she's never had to do something quite like this. And so... While I don't love watching her, much like a lot of this, because of how zany it is and because of how like crazy she is, she does bring it home and has these moments of uh, nuance and character development where she's quiet and we learn about her past and they're like emotionally connecting tissue. And she just she's walks the line between them exceptionally well. So I wouldn't be accept- or upset if she gets a nomination for this, uh, honestly. And then everybody else was fine. I-, I thought Calva was good. I thought Pitt was a little flat and boring. And I-, I think maybe it's the character and the intention of the character and how the character is created. In- like It is supposed to be that way, but it felt weird because it's Brad Pitt for him not to quite have the same suave demeanor. And it almost feels like someone is trying to be Brad Pitt, but failing, it's a weird thing. And so again, I'm in that middle ground where I, I get it. And I, and for I, it, I, in a way, I guess I'm praising it because for him to act down on purpose, it's so strange, but that's what the, when you see this people, you'll understand what I'm saying. The, the character he is playing is a silent movie star who has real struggles when it comes to having to actually use his voice and transition into this new world because he's great at doing a certain thing. And that's just not how we see Brad Pitt. And so it's strange, but it's accurate. So that's kind of where I am with him. I mentioned too many caricature side characters for my liking. Uh, The the score, 100% with you. Phenomenal. I've been listening to Call Me Manny on repeat. There is also a motif here that is repeatedly used from one of the La La Land tracks. Uh, There's just a little bit of it that kind of trickles through uh, the threads of this movie in very specific places. And I my heart was just a flutter because I love stuff like that. And it again goes to like show that he knows what he's doing and telling these two stories and, and having them with similar purposes uh, in a way. So I liked that a lot as well. And and the cinematography is, yeah, it's outstanding. I mean, every technical thing about this was what kind of helped keep me going, even when I was not having a lot of fun with it. We usually recommend theater, wait for home, or don't watch it at all. So I guess I'll just go with that and ask, I mean, I guess what you're going to say, but what do you what do you think and what's the reason for that? The reason I think what I think is because I think the best directed scene of the year is in this film. I think it's at the end of the film and I think it's the 2001-esque Stargate sequence. And if you're in a theater that is full, the value of feeling yourself in the audience during that sequence when the camera pulls back 
and looks at this full crowd and then goes in and looks along all the different types of faces and people that find meaning and the beauty of these pictures and these stories makes it so that watching it in a theater delivers a different feeling and experience that will be gone when you watch it at home. And I can guarantee that because I've watched it twice, once in a theater, once at home. You don't feel the same way when you're at home. It doesn't ruin it. You just don't feel the same thing. And I think that if you really want to truly feel this film, since that's part of this whole podcast you have, that the theater is the correct way to experience it. I wholeheartedly agree with that, especially because the technical elements are so strong and also because I was thinking back after we got out of our screening and how part of we got a link to watch it the very next day. And there was a brief moment where I was like, Matt, Dad Gummit, like I could have saved travel and fifteen dollars of parking and, and all this stuff. I don't know that I would have given this movie the fair shot at home because it demands attention to things that are not enjoyable like we've talked about and is exactly what you're it saying. It is very cacophonous. I would, I would have been on my phone. I would have gotten on my laptop and once that attention had siphoned off to something else, I don't know that it would have ever come fully back so that I could appreciate the scenes that I do appreciate as much as I came to by seeing it in a theater. So I do recommend it. I want to give a caveat because a lot of our listeners do have concerns about types of content. And so let me be very upfront. There is explicit graphic nudity right off the bat in this thing. So you don't actually see hard sort of like pin it. Yeah. In fact, it's funny because you and did we talk about blonde on here? I think we did. Mm. No, we didn't. Did yes, we? I, no, I don't no, think it was one of the movies we talked films. about. We talked about other stuff, but we both saw blonde together and loved it. Blonde got an NC-17 rating, which I don't really understand. This movie is much closer to NC-17 than Blonde was, in my opinion, specifically for the opening of the film. This party is lengthy. It is orgies all over the place. There's some sex acts that you won't be able to predict, so I'm not going to tell you what they are, but they're presented in very vivid <laughs> detail. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's just, it's it's crazy. So if that stuff completely ruins your experience or you're not able you, you just don't want to take that in then this is a pass for you just there's lots of drugs you. lots of dead bodies tons lots of yeah. poor decision making and there's a particular sequence that aaron alluded to that we didn't really dig into featuring toby Maguire, where it's really a descent into hell and filled with depravity nudity sexuality grotesqueness if you think the freak scene uh from nightmare alley is bad you haven't seen nothing yet Good. yeah yeah. So so there's the disclaimer, but otherwise, yeah, for most cinephiles, you know, if you are listening to this and you're the kind of person who wants to see everything that potentially gets nominated for the Oscars and you don't have filters like that, uh, then yeah, I think you definitely need to at least see this and make your mind up because movies like this that are divisive are, in my opinion, often the best thing because it's great when people have such strong reactions because I've seen so many people that just hate it and just think it is the worst thing and then so many people that borderline think it is the best movie of the year and then here i am trying to play mediator and say it's kind of both 
straddle right. the line. There's one final recommendation I want to make, which is if you have the time, I do think this film's directly in conversation with La La Land. And so I'd encourage any listener that has the opportunity to watch La La Land before they go watch Babylon, because there's a lot that I missed out on because I haven't recently seen it that you were able to clue into. So I just encourage that. Yeah, I've, I see it a lot. <laughs> I watch it quite often. So, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that's a great recommendation. Well, before I let you go, Taylor, where can people find your work out on the internet and the airwaves, etc.? As always, everything that I do and say can be found at drinkinthemovies.com. There, there's an about page if you want to follow me on any social media website or anything like that. All right. Thank you very much for being here, everybody. Check out Taylor's work and we'll move along with a couple of solo reviews right on after this. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, folks. Well, Taylor is gone and I'm here to wrap this up. I mentioned at the top of this episode that we were going to have three films to review, but one of those is not going to happen. Unfortunately, I was unable to make it to one of the press screenings the one for I Want to Dance with Somebody, the Whitney Houston biopic. Uh, Unfortunately, we've got some nasty cold winter weather here in Seattle and decided not to risk it. So just going to give you my thoughts on one last film and then call it a day. That is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish from Universal Pictures and DreamWorks Animation. It stars the voices of Antonio Banderas, Selma Hayek, Harvey Guillen, Florence Pugh, Olivia Coleman, Ray Winstone, Samson K.O., John Mulaney, Wagner Mora, Divine Joy Randolph, and Anthony Mendez. It is directed by Joel Crawford and Hanuel Mercado. It is written by Paul Fisher and Tommy Swerdlow, based on a story by Swerdlow and the first film's writer Tom Wheeler, with additional screenplay material provided by the bad guys, writer, Eaton Cohen. What's it about? Puss in Boots discovers that his passion for adventure has taken its toll. He has burnt through eight of his nine lives. Puss sets out on an epic journey to find the mythical last wish and restore his nine lives. Well, come to find out, Avatar was not the only great movie getting a fantastic new sequel over a decade later during this Christmas season. I was not expecting this sequel to so smartly handle themes of companionship, fear of trusting others, mortality, childhood trauma, the idea of what makes us happy, the need for identity, and even how we define family. But here we are. For Puss, this journey is all about finding the mythical last wish in order to restore his full nine lives so that he can continue adventuring and continue maintaining the identity that he has crafted for himself and that matters so much to him. But what takes this story to the next level is that he isn't alone. And honestly, his story is just one of several that converge as an eclectic cast of characters all pursue This idea that they can change their future for the better in a blink by reaching this wishing star. It helps that the voice cast is absolutely excellent. To a person, top-notch, loved each and every performance. Florence Pugh is Goldilocks, and she is with her family of the three bears. 
two of which are voiced by Olivia Coleman and Ray Winstone. And I am convinced that someone saw Midsommar and made that casting choice, ironically, on purpose as a nod to that film and what happens with Florence Pugh and a bear. Uh, Wagner Mora plays the big bad wolf who is hunting down puss and he is representative of a challenge that the cat just doesn't think he can win. He is representative of the final life that puss may very well lose if he can't come out on top and obviously would not come back from. He's terrifying, very scary. I could see some younger audience members being honestly right on the edge of crying over the way that the big bad wolf is depicted at times. Like he carries these two uh, like sickles uh, or small shortened scythes that he uses for weapons. He he had me worried that he was going to pop out of the screen and cut me into pieces. John Mulaney plays Jack Horner, who is a surprise villain with a menagerie of famous fairy tale and nursery rhyme items. It's always fun when you get a bunch of references like that and you get to see these things that you've read about or seen in other individual stories be put into a situation where they get used together or in new ways uh, that are very creative and interesting. And then accompanying Puss himself are his returning love interest, Kitty Softpaws, and his new pal, a sickly, optimistic chihuahua named Pero, who steals the show in many, many ways. What makes this so good isn't just that it has like vibrant and textured animation that is gorgeous and striking in action sequences. I absolutely loved the way that it looks when there are fight scenes. But each character has a genuinely moving reason for their desires. And for such a large group, the attention on them is balanced to perfection. How the stories individually shake out is a joy to see, and it's deeper and more touching than you're going to expect going in. The characters all really grew on me too, and made me hopeful that we would get to see more of them in the future. The movie has at least one catchy bop on the soundtrack that will probably worm its way into your ear and have you singing it all the way home or at home as you're walking around the house if you end up watching this later on. And the score is filled with just some beautiful flamenco musical bits as well. It's a total package that I think is family friendly where both kids and adults can love it. There's nothing vulgar. And I honestly can say at this point that for my teenage son and myself, uh, we felt like this is our second favorite animated film of the year. It's so clever. It's got so much heart. DreamWorks has gone under the radar in the great animated studio wars, but with top tier series like how to train your dragon, Kung Fu Panda, and now Puss in Boots, I think that this animation studio's star is shining much brighter than we really give it credit for. I highly recommend you see this in theaters. This is in theaters as of December 21st, and the animation is so beautiful. It is full of bright, sharp colors that will just look amazing on a big screen. 
And frankly, I think that the infectious nature of a full theater of kids laughing and giggling is just going to make this even better uh, as a communal watching experience. So I highly recommend you see it no matter what, whether you wait for it to get to a streaming service or be rentable or purchasable in digital format or home video. But I do think that it is worth packing up the kids and taking them to the theater to watch. If you're looking for that family-friendly Christmas movie and you have younger kids in that family, this is the movie that you're going to choose. If you have teens, you'll probably want to see something like Glass Onion, which is going to be the next main review that Patrick and I cover on the show for our episode coming up this next weekend. Also an amazing film, but this is the one that you want to take your kids to. It's really, really good. It, it really is a big surprise, and I loved it. Well, that's it for this episode of FF+. Plus. Thank you so much for listening. I think this might be the last episode of new review releases that we have for 2022. That's right, folks. The year is over. It's a wrap. I hope you've enjoyed coming on this ride. We'll be back in 2023. There may be some more FF Plus episode drops, but they won't be new release reviews. It'll be some extra fun bonus type content that Patrick and I have planned. We're looking forward to sharing that with you soon. If you enjoy the show, please, 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 please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out so much. We haven't had any in a long time. So if you haven't gotten around to doing that, it would mean the world to us because those reviews and those ratings on Apple Podcasts is what Rotten Tomatoes uses to determine whether a podcast is worthy of being included in their critic lineup or not. And that's the thing that matters. So we would love to achieve that goal and you can help us get there. Also find us on social media, add us, follow us, Come chat with us. I myself love to talk. You can find me at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, all over the internet, and I will talk movies with you anytime. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling filled.